Okay, so Revelation chapter 19. Um, the passage is so incredibly rich tonight, and I, I do want to just backtrack for a second. And uh, before we get into the one who sits upon the white horse and all that's there, I want to just remind you about something that we saw at the end of last time, and it's in Revelation 19.10. John has been told in verse 9 of Revelation 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we talked about Isaiah 25 and the beautiful picture of that table on God's mountain and the beauty of him wiping away tears from our eyes. And John is told these are the true words of God. And he falls at the feet of the angel to worship him. In verse 10, chapter 19, and the angel says, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now you're about to see a prophecy of all prophecies. You're about to see a prophecy of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy or prophecy is largely about Jesus. In fact, you could say probably the major percentage of prophecies in the Bible point to Jesus. The first and second coming, for example. We could talk about the millennial kingdom, which we will talk about in Revelation 20. But the angel says, don't worship me. Angels do not receive worship. Now, some of you may be thinking, ah, but Satan wanted worship, and isn't Satan a fallen angel? Okay, let me qualify. Good angels do not receive worship. So this angel says, don't do that. I am a fellow servant, which is interesting for an angel to say to a human, to John, I'm a fellow servant of yours. Worship God. These are the first two commandments. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Don't make an idol. And so the angel says, don't worship me in rapid fire. When the Magi came to the place where Jesus was, he was in a house at this time. Just write these down. I don't have time to develop this tonight. They, the Magi, fell down and worshiped Jesus and opening their treasures, presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, Matthew 2.11. They said, when they first came into town, uh, they said they had come, they had seen the star in the east, and they've come to worship him, Matthew 2.2 and Matthew 2.11. In Matthew 14, uh, Jesus stops the wind, and seeing the wind, he became, or excuse me, this is Peter on the water. Peter became afraid when he saw the wind. He began to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, you are certainly God's son. Matthew 14, Now you may be asking, Pastor Michael, why are you talking about this? Because there are people who deny that Jesus is God. And I, I have to bring it up because this is the group that largely teaches this. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is the first and greatest creation of God. And they teach, and maybe they don't all know this. The average Jehovah's Witness may not know this, but I think a good majority do. They teach that Jesus is Michael the archangel. Jesus cannot be an angel because he's receiving worship all over the New Testament. 
He cannot be a good angel if he's receiving worship, but we don't believe he's an angel at all. We believe what? He is God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. In Matthew 28, they beheld Jesus. Jesus met them and greeted them. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And he said, don't be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. Matthew 28, 9 and 10. Matthew 28, 17 and 18. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And then he gives the great commission, Matthew 27, excuse me, 28, 17 and 18. Now there's other places where Jesus does receive worship. For example, the man that was born blind and is healed by Jesus, uh, he said, Lord, I believe, John 9, 38, and worshiped him. And Jesus, in all these cases, either the Bible doesn't make commentary or Jesus affirms something or he receives the worship. And then in John 20, 28, Thomas, upon reaching his, uh, his uh, finger and seeing his hands and reaching his hand, putting it into his side, Jesus said, don't be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Jesus didn't say, oh, no, no, Tom, you've got it all wrong. I'm not God. Don't worship me. Jesus had every opportunity right there to set the record straight if he was not God and not worthy of worship. But he says, blessed are you because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who do not see and what? They believe. And then in the book of Revelation, we saw in chapter five, the son is worshiped right in the presence of the father. Do you remember? There's the lamb there and the throne. And in Hebrews 1, the father says to the angels, let all the angels of God worship him. The father instructs the angels to worship Jesus. Jesus cannot be an angel. Jesus receives worship. He is God. Everybody with me? I know this is not always the easiest concept to grasp as you're growing in the scriptures and growing in your faith. But I just want to reiterate, the Bible teaches over and over that Jesus is God. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He is second person of the Holy Trinity. Now, the spirit of prophecy here, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now we have the prophecy of all prophecies, the second coming, if you will, of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just talk about some timing for a second, because some of you have been, you know, you've been with us through the whole book of Revelation. You may be wondering about a few things. Let me just explain what I believe happens is when the day of the Lord starts, the day of the Lord is the start of the wrath of God. One of the first things that happens is that the Lord rescues his bride. He raptures the church. There's a resurrection and a rapture, okay? The church is not appointed to wrath. So before wrath can come, what has to happen? There has to be a pulling out of the people of God, just like happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, just like happened before the flood came, Noah was closed into the boat, okay? First, the people of God are rescued. Then judgment comes. The day of the Lord is not a literal 24-hour day. It is God's day. Man has had his day, put day in quotes, Now God has his day. And one of the judgments in the day of the Lord lasts five months. 
Revelation 9, 5, write this down if you're interested, and Revelation 9, verse 10. One judgment in the day of the Lord judgments lasts five months. So the day of the Lord is not a literal 24-hour day. It is rather an extended amount of time where God is pouring his judgment on an unbelieving world. And what do we see over and over again? When the judgment comes, people would not repent. They would not repent. They would not repent. They curse God, but they will not repent. So this is what we have now. We have the day of the Lord. And we've been watching. We watched the trumpets. We've watched the bowls. One of the bowls, uh, the, there was the, the river dries up and it makes the way for the kings of the east. And you can see kind of this battle-ready uh, thing going on for Armageddon. And what we're gonna find in Revelation 19 is Armageddon. Jesus, by the way, the Bible promises that Jesus will come again. John 14, Jesus says, I will come again and receive you to myself. Acts 1, just in the same way that you saw Jesus go up, he will what? He will come again. We have other scriptures that say he will set his feet on the Mount of Olives. If you ever get to go to Israel and you get to stand on the Mount of Olives, you will stand where the Bible says he is literally his feet will be there. He will come in judgment. You can write down Acts 1, 6 through 11. Don't have time to go there tonight. But here's Jesus Christ, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mockers in the last days will say, where is the promise of his coming? Oh, he's coming. And one, one day it's gonna be, it's time. It's time. The time has finally come. Can you imagine how excited we're gonna be as the church when our hero on the white horse comes a-riding in? Woo! Come on. You should be excited. Our champion's coming. And if you ain't on his team, it's not going to be good. But if you're behind him on a white horse, if that's the church, and we'll talk about that, it's going to be pretty cool. We're just going to be saying, get him, Jesus. <laughs> get him, Lord. It's time. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. The day of the Lord will come. And remember, as we've been looking in Scripture, God will give every opportunity for people to get right. The gospel will be even proclaimed in the heavens so people will have a chance. People will be warned, don't take the mark, don't take the mark. And then finally, when people decide, and Jesus said, you're either for me or against me, then the day will come. I saw heaven opened. Heaven, we get now another glimpse into heaven. Verse 11, Revelation 19, and behold, a white horse. If you've seen the Lord of the Rings movie, I think it's the return of the king. Uh, there's a battle scene going on and the orcs and all those weird creatures are, you know, finally it looks like it's doomsday for the good guys. And the, you know, Aragon is battling and uh, who's the white wizard guy? Gandalf shows up on the other side. Remember the cliff and they're, they're there and he says, look for my coming on whatever it is, the fourth day at sunrise. And when you see the army show up and the white horse and they come charging down that hill, the, the bad orcs have to turn. And, and oh, it's just the, this, the brilliance of them coming down with the sun. Ah, they don't look so bad anymore. You can see their band-aids and everything is holding these guys together. It's a great scene. And it gives you just a smidgen of the taste of what's going to happen on this day. 
because Jesus is coming, our conquering Lord, our great God and Savior. Heaven's open and behold a white horse. He who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. He is the majestic writer. If you want to write down Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. One day Jesus is going to come and his enemies are going to be a footstool for his feet. Do you long for the king to come? You know, your, your thought, your response to the return of Jesus Christ is a pretty good indicator of where your spiritual life is. Are you excited? Or does it make you shudder a little bit? You start thinking about certain rooms in your house that you might want to clean out, <laughs> certain closets that you got to deal with. The second coming, Charles Swindoll said, smashes all of our idols. Because how do you want to be found on that day? Jesus said, occupy until I come. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I sure hope so. He asked that question. And now we have before us the second coming. You know, those who interpret the Bible, those who study the book of Revelation and look at apocalyptic language and language that we've been studying, ask the question, is it a literal white horse? Are there horses in heaven? I mean, everybody's asking if there's dogs in heaven. I don't know. How many stables do they have up there? I, I don't know. I don't know how literal to take this image because remember, we are still dealing with a lot of symbolic imagery. But if we go with the symbolism in Rome, someone who is riding on a white horse, and in, even in modern movies and things like that, what does that represent? A good guy, a conqueror, a champion. But some of you are going, wait a minute. We saw a white horse in Revelation 6. Michelle, that's awesome. She said, that's the wrong horse. Or more specifically, it's the wrong rider of the horse, right? <laughs> but you got it. Because the Antichrist is going to look like a good guy, but he comes conquering to conquer. You say, well, Jesus does the same. But you can see in the chronology of what we studied, and you may want to go back there and look at it, you know the devil is a master counterfeiter. But here comes Jesus on a white horse. In 2 Kings 2, 11 through 13, it says, it came about as they were going along and talking, Elijah and Elisha, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces and also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. There's some scenes in the Bible where we see chariots and horses that appear from heaven. Are they literal? Is it some sort of symbolic image? I'll let you wrestle with your conclusion as how you take this language. But we know, at least in the symbolism it is representing our great champion, our hero, our conqueror. Paul says, 
I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who what? Love his appearing. Do you love the fact that Jesus is coming? If you interviewed people on the street, at the mall, in the shopping center, and you said, hey, what do you think about the second coming of Jesus? You think they'd say, well, what? Paul went on in 2 Timothy 4.18, the last chapter he ever wrote, to say, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. The one who rides on the horse, and there's going to be seven descriptions of Jesus from this point forward, is called faithful and true. Faithful and true. In verse nine, uh, when we were introduced to the marriage supper of the lamb, I think it's in verse nine. Uh, these are the, yeah, end, end of uh, nine. These are the true words of God. Then the one on the horse is called faithful and true. You know, as I look at the news today and I, and I see what's happening in leadership, um, and, you know, here I'm talking about political leadership, but we could talk about all the stories coming out in Hollywood and that kind of thing right now. It's, it's a sad indictment on our culture. And, you know, you, you have to, as an individual citizen of America and as you weigh the news coverage, you have to ferret through the stories, right? And you have to determine, you know, what's, what's true and what's not true or whatever. But, but look, there's enough of this garbage going on right now where when we think about leaders and we think about those that we can call faithful and true, how many can you count on your hands? When's the last time you said, hey, that person, that leader is faithful and true. How many people do you know in your life that you would categorize as faithful and true? You know, by very nature of fallen humanity, we don't have a lot of people and examples that we can look to. We're often disappointed by people who make promises that they're going to be faithful and true. And then there's a pack of lies. There's a pack of falsehood. Uh, there's, there's religions that promise power, uh, you know, maybe excitement, and people dabble with occult things. By the way, the first 633, our Sunday night service in January, I'm going to be talking about the occult. And I'm going to be talking about how people who think that they may be doing something religious end up opening the door to occult dark power. So it can happen even in religious stuff. But this writer is faithful and true. Something else that you're gonna see about him in verse 11. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. In John 7, 24, Jesus said, make a righteous judgment. Every judgment that Jesus makes will be righteous. 100% guaranteed. Because What's some of the skeptics of the God of the Bible, what do they say? I'm not sure that he, it's fair that he judges the way he judges. And this is the famous, this is the, the verses that all unbelievers know. Don't, doesn't the Bible say somewhere, judge not, 
lest you be judged, right? Don't judge me, right? These are the ones they know, although they often take them out of context, right? But when Jesus makes a judgment, and we've seen in this book already that the, the ones in heaven are saying, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. His judgments will be righteous and true. Revelation 3.14 says he is faithful and true. And this is really, when you think about the descriptions of Jesus and what the Bible says, he's faithful and true because he's God. That's God's nature. God is by very nature faithful, and he is in his very nature true. In fact, God, you know, Jesus, when he makes a declaration about himself, he says, I am the way and I am the truth. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. It's impossible for God to what? To lie. He is always true to his word, which is heartening for a as a follower of Jesus Christ, to know this about him, that what he says is faithful and true. So these descriptions go on. Verse 12 says, and, and if you want a reference to uh, a parallel passage, write down Isaiah 11:5, where it says, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Isaiah 11:5. And it's, pointing to the millennial reign of Christ. His eyes, verse 12, are a flame of fire. Upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. First, we look at his eyes. His eyes, three more descriptions of him in verse 12, are like a flame of fire. Do you remember earlier in the book, we saw this in Revelation 1.14, and his eyes being a flame of fire could speak of his pure judgment, but also can speak of his omniscience. Jesus sees through everything. In fact, sometimes in the New Testament, you read about Jesus, he knew people's thoughts. How inconvenient for those people. Can you imagine if you heard everybody's thoughts? I think it would ruin my whole view of everybody. <laughs> right? But Jesus, the only way Jesus could know people's thoughts is to be omniscient. Because no one knows the thoughts of the man except that man or God. He even knows the thought before I think it. And so Jesus has these eyes that can see through everything better than x-ray vision. Look at another description of him in verse 12. Upon his head are many diadems. A diadem is a crown. It's a, the crown of a king. He has, what does it say? Many diadems. Uh, we'll come across this story in 2 Samuel 12, but when David defeated the, Ammonite, uh, the Ammonites and the king himself, he took the crown of the king from his head and it was placed on David's head. 2 Samuel 12, verse 30. Some scholars say that these may have been more like headbands. Others say they were literal crowns. We know there was a crown that was worn by the high priest as he served in the temple, and it said, holiness to the Lord. Whatever the crown looked like, Jesus has many diadems. And what this speaks of is that he is the king of all areas, all lands, all places. He is king of kings and lord of lords. There's no place where he does not have sovereign dominion. 
And in fact, when he comes back, he's going to take his rightful place because there has been a usurper who's tried to be the God of this age. He's, of course, not. He's tried to be the, the one beating the drum for the world to follow. And of course, the world has followed him in some respects, but Jesus is the true king. You can write down Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Look at verse 12. He has many diadems on his head, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. What is this name? I don't know because nobody knows it except him. <laughs> so I don't know what it is. Maybe it speaks of the fact that when we end up in heaven, we will be plumbing the depths of God's nature for all eternity. See, we know some things about God, but we don't know everything about God. There's some things about God that perhaps when we have resurrection bodies and maybe we use more of our brains then, and I'll leave that to you if that's going to be the case. <laughs> maybe we'll be plumbing the depths deeper. I think we'll be learning and growing, and it's exciting to think about what's ahead. Morris says, John may well be saying that no one has power over Christ. He is supreme. In the ancient world, those who practiced magic believed if they knew your name, it gave them power over you. But Jesus has a name no one knows, and that could be a secondary application. But either way, it speaks of his power, his omniscience, his, the beauty of his very nature. 13, I think this is the sixth attribute that we'll see about him. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called what? The Word of God. The robe dipped in blood, you have two schools of thought. Some say that the robe represents the cross and the finished work of Jesus Christ and his redemption for us, but I don't think that that's the meaning. I think the robe dipped in blood is the blood of his enemies. And we can see this in Isaiah 63. Tell you what, turn over there for a second. Isaiah 63. A little bit past the Psalms and Proverbs. Isaiah 63. There's uh, 66 chapters, so it's really towards the end of the book. Isaiah 63, verse one. Who is this who comes from Edom? Isaiah 63, one. With garments of glowing colors from Basra. This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Isaiah 63, 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads the wine press, in the wine press? And he, he responds in verse three. He says, I have tread, trodden the wine trough alone. From the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. And I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished that there was no one to uphold. And so my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my wrath, and poured out their lifeblood on the earth. The seventh attribute back in Revelation 19, 13 is that Jesus is called the word of God. The man who authored the book of Revelation is John the apostle. The man who wrote the book of John is John the apostle. And he opens his 
gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In 1 John 1, 1, he also makes reference to the Word. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld with our hands, concerning the Word of life. Jesus is called in Revelation 19, 13, the Word of God. Now, he's coming in judgment. So the word of God could mean that it speaks of the purity of his judgment and that he's going to speak the word. He spoke the word when the universe came into existence. He said, let there be light. And there was light. So if he says of somebody, "Uh, you done? (laughs) Then see you later. He holds our very life breath in his hand. He speaks stars into existence. He's incredibly powerful. He's called the Word of God. In this context, says one writer, the Word of God may be communicating the authoritative, decisive finality of the judgment he comes to render. But we also know that he's the living embodiment of truth as depicted in the Word of God as well. And the armies which are in heaven, Revelation 19, 14, clothed in fine linen, which seems kind of strange for an army to be clothed in fine linen, white and clean. We're following him on white horses. Now, there's two schools of thought. Some believe that those following Jesus on white horses is the church. And some believe it's an angelic army. Just write this down. This is 2 Kings 6, 16 and 17. He answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. The Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Open his eyes that he may see. The horses and the chariots, what do you think they represented? in all likelihood, an angelic army. In Matthew 25, 31, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, Matthew 25, 31, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Jude, verse 14 says, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. The word for holy ones here could be translated saints. Hagias, I think is the Greek word, or it could be angels. So some people believe that the church is following him, but I don't think we'll have to do much but just watch him destroy the enemies if it's the church. Some people believe it's an angelic army and the bride of Christ doesn't have to fight. And there's some connection with the white linen and the clean garments to the church. So you can wrestle a little bit with that. There's some clear verses that seem to indicate the angels are all coming with him. Could it be a combination of angels and saints? Possibly. But... I want you to imagine now kind of a battle scene with the one horse in front and now all these other horses behind. This is the Lord's army. He's called the Lord of hosts or the armies of heaven. He's Lord over. You can see that in Joshua chapter five and other places. And so here he comes. And all these, you know, how many angels are there? There's potentially millions, perhaps even billions of angels. And here they come with the Lord of glory. And from his mouth, a sharp sword, 
so that with it he may smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. I've heard some teachers who are more of the preterist persuasion, and we've explained that earlier, say this is all symbolic and maybe Revelation 19 is not about the second coming, but it's about the word of God spreading all over the world and people who were once enemies being converted to Christ. And maybe the horse is the church and Jesus rides the horse and he rides the message of the church into the world. I'd say, thanks for playing, but I think the whole theme of the chapter is not about the gospel going out. It's about the day of the Lord. Look at verse 15. It's the wrath of God. He's smiting the nations. He's not saving them. He's smiting them. This is the day of the Lord. He's put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Joel 3.13. Their blood is poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Zephaniah 1.17. This is the day of the Lord's wrath. And on his robe, And on his thigh, 16, he has a name written. What's his name? King of kings and Lord of lords. Some people have said, does this mean Jesus has a tattoo? Because on his robe and on his thigh. Well, I think the language could be taken that this is just really on his robe, but also remember this is probably, again, just largely symbolic. So I don't think that this is your best verse to try to defend your tattoo. (laughs) Jesus has one. I'd be really careful with that one. But anyway, if you want more on that, look up Did Jesus Have a Tattoo on (laughs) gotquestions.org if you want to do more research. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, 17. He cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, come and, and assemble for the great supper of God. Now this angel may be standing in front of the sun or on top of the sun. I don't know how this works. Um, again, we can be dealing with some symbolic language, but you'll see that he's crying out to the birds and he's crying out from the place where the birds fly, if you will, to come and gather them. Now, the marriage supper of the Lamb was earlier in Revelation 19. That's the place that you want to be, invited to the wedding, the bride of Christ, all the blessings. This other supper, you don't don't want to go. Because in the first example, you get to eat at the king's table and have wedding cake at the very end. How many of you love your sweets even after you're full? Never too full for sweets. But if you're part and invited to the second supper, you are the dinner. So choose door A and choose wisely. Because if you remember the movie, The Birds, you will be having a starring role. Something like this. And the birds, even before the battle, are told, come and assemble. This is certainty of victory. Come and assemble. There's about to be a great meal for you guys. Ezekiel 39. Let's turn there. All right, you went to Isaiah last time, so a little further on in the Old Testament. Ezekiel. Ezekiel 38 and 39 are famous chapters because they depict 
what I think most people agree is the Battle of Armageddon or a last day's battle of some sort. Maybe not everybody agreeing that's Armageddon, but in uh, Ezekiel 39, check this out. This is uh, 39, let's look at, um, starting in verse four. You shall fall on the mountains, Ezekiel 39, four of Israel. You and all your troops and the peoples who are with you I shall give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field, Ezekiel 39, 5. You will fall on the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord God. Skip down to verse 17, Ezekiel 39. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and to every beast of the field, assemble and come Gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice for you. As a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of mighty men, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, as though they were rams, lambs, goats, and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you are glutted, drink blood until you are drunk. From my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you, and you will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all the men of war, declares the Lord God. A radical scene, taking scripture with scripture, back to Revelation 19, and we'll finish it up. So Jesus has come. The armies of the earth begin to assemble. This is a battle coming the Battle of Armageddon, Revelation 19.18. The birds are told, 19.18, that they're to assemble for this supper to eat, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, 19.18, Revelation, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, those who sit on them. You can write down Ezekiel 39 in the margin, what we just read. The flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. Here comes the kings, the commanders, the mighty men, what are they assembling for? They've come to fight God. This is Psalm 2. And he who is in heaven laughs, right? You know what makes God laugh? People who think they're going to fight him. So here's what happens. I saw the beast, Revelation 19, 19. The kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. All right, so here comes Jesus, angelic armies with him, perhaps the church with him, all assembled for battle, the day of the Lord, all this incredible wrath and disaster has been poured out. People should know better by now, but you know what they've gotten to now? I'll tell you what, let's fight him. We're gonna fight him. How's it sound? Yeah, we'll fight him. Can you imagine some of the discussion among the troops? Yeah, they said he'll be coming from somewhere up there, Fred. I don't know, just, just keep looking. Something about a white horse. Hey, why are all those birds flying overhead right now, Fred? <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, they look kind of hungry and they even seem to be kind of laughing at us. <laughs> Man is going to finally act out what he's been doing for a long time. Woe to you who quarrel with your maker. How many people are fighting God? Are you? 
Do you know it's the ultimate losing battle? This is the ultimate mission impossible. What are you going to do? What weapon do you got? Egypt thought they might try it until God opened the sea with a blast of his nostril. And they realized they were fighting against God. Your arms are too short, man. It's not going to work. I'll fight him. I'll fight him. Okay. It's not going to be much of a fight. You're not going to last too long. Just surrender. And imagine if man, and this is obviously just inconceivable, but imagine if man somehow was able to overcome God. You know, the Bible says that God holds the whole world together, Hebrews 1.3, by the word of his power. So you wouldn't have a world left to rule because the only reason there's a world is because God's holding it together. So either way, it doesn't work. But you're not going to win a battle against God anyway. And in the Enlightenment period, period, man said God is dead. And in killing God, in quotes, he killed himself. You go, next time you have an atheist or naturalistic friend who doesn't believe in God and ask them, what value does your life have? They may say, oh, well, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Yeah, but, but you're gonna do this or that for 60, 80, maybe 100 years. And, and then what value does your life have? Well, and then maybe I've influenced other people and they'll remember me. But you know, scientists say that the way the universe is going, they believe everything's gonna implode on itself and probably sink into a black hole. So what value does your life really have? You know what these thinkers and philosophers have said who are in the naturalistic camp, no God, they've said, we just have to pretend that we have value. We, here's our worldview. There's no God. We, we dismissed him a long while ago. So now, <laughs> this, this is what we do. We pretend that there's value and meaning to our lives. Look, if there is no God, there's no purpose and value, ultimate purpose and value. I don't care how you try to convince yourself. There's nothing. But here's the truth. And his fingerprints are everywhere. And if you just open your eyes and don't suppress the truth to live the way you want to live and you get on board with his program, he'll show you great and mighty things that you do not know. I had a note in my notes that reports have been widely published stating that there has been a great increase in the population of birds of prey in recent years in the lands of the Middle East. I think, they're, I think they're already having some pre-meetings. You know the date? No, I don't know the date, but... <laughs> and the beast... <laughs> Sorry for that. <laughs> ...was seized. Now, do you hear anything about a fight? No, the, the beast was seized. Who, who's the beast? That's the Antichrist. With him, the false prophet, probably one in each arm for God. <laughs> I don't know if that's how it'll work, but who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive 
into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Here's the famous lake of fire. We'll talk more about this lake in Revelation 20. And the rest were killed, those who had assembled. And of course, who did they follow? The beast and the Antichrist. And once the Lord made quick work of them, I'm sure the rest of the armies are like, uh-oh. <laughs> well, the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And I think just by his word, by the breath of his coming, Second Thessalonians, he slays the man of perdition and all that goes with him. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Our great champion, Jesus Christ, when he comes, there's not gonna be a fight. Because the world, the earth is the Lord's and the people therein. And one day he will wrap up the times and our great champion is coming. And he will execute judgment and he will deal with the enemies. And as we move into Revelation 20, we'll look at the millennial reign of Christ and we'll see how he sets up the kingdom and there's a new heaven and new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And that's what's ahead of us. Praise God. And that's gonna be uh, in a few weeks because next week, Pastor John's gonna give us a Christmas message. And so we'll take a little break from Revelation until we return. But uh, thank you guys for being here tonight. And Shane, if you wanna come on up, we'll close the service. Um, I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet if you're able. And uh, I'm gonna close this in prayer and I'm just gonna ask you, I don't know every single person here tonight. I think I know most of you, but if you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I would just cry out to you. Be reconciled to God. If you're watching and you were not able to be here tonight, can I just say to you, if you don't know the one who's riding this horse, be reconciled to God. You may say, well, what do I have to do? Something like this. Lord Jesus, I believe that you came to save me on a rescue mission on a Bethlehem night. You entered this world. I believe you grew up, that you were sinless. I believe you died on the cross, took my punishment, took my penalty, took my shame. I believe that your sacrifice pays for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead, just like you said you would. I believe in your death on the cross, your resurrection. I believe that you are God. I believe that you're my Savior and my Lord, and I repent of my sin. If it's you, would you pray it right now? I repent of my sin, and I put my trust in you. And that's what it takes. Salvation is a gift. It's not earned or deserved. It's a gift of God. And then, can I say, would you now live your life for him? What else would you live for after you've come to know him?